Live from Los Angeles at Sinai Temple, this is Rabbi Era Sherman, Rabbi on the Sidelines, where we speak about sports and faith and their intersection on and off the court. This morning, we are joined by the voice of the Colorado Buffaloes, basketball and football and director of broadcasting, Mark Johnson, live from Boulder, Colorado. Mark, it's so good to have you on the show this morning. Rabbi, great to be on with you. I'm glad you're fan. I'm uh, excited to see what we talk about. That that's a passion of mine. I, I I'm my vocation is sports. My passion is faith. So when you uh, drop me a line about this podcast, I thought what a perfect opportunity. So Mark and I were just talking about before the show that he had two options in life: and uh, to be a pastor, to be a broadcaster. And I said I'm living out my dream during this pandemic and hopefully beyond that we're taking the faith actually on the court. And Mark's going to bring the faith uh, off the court to us as well. Uh, first, I just want to send on behalf of Sinai Temple and Los Angeles community uh, condolences to the Boulder, Colorado community um, on the difficult uh, the shooting at the, the supermarket. And I just want to know how, how your community is doing over this past week. Well, as you can imagine, it's, it's a shocker. And, and too frequently in society, we talk about these events. And, and I've said many times, and, and not so much in my sports role, more my ministry role, uh, when I talked to different groups here in the last, uh, you know, week or week and a half, almost two weeks now, I said it's, you know, we, we see these stories happen around the world. There's always tragedy coming from somewhere. And when we, we hear from it, you know, on the other side of the globe or on the other side of the United States, it's a sad story. And, and it happens in your backyard. And, and then it becomes a nightmare. And so uh, yeah. you can imagine how the community is right now. I mean, it's back on its heels. It's, it's morning. It's confused. When these kind of things happen, we, we try to wrap our minds and hearts around an evil, uh, illogical act. And it, it's such a tough deal to do and so hard for all of us to get to, you know, kind of our head around it. And that, that's kind of where Boulder's at right now. Actually, in our tradition, we don't ask why, but rather when. And I can imagine that there's also when these things happen some acts of kindness and goodness that you see um, happen within the community as well. Oh, there's, there's no question about it. And, you know, if, if you, if you can possibly in this unbelievably dark cloud, look for any kind of, of silver lining, if you will, it's, there's, there's awakening in people of some sort, you know, where, where they begin to think about humanity, which maybe in our day-to-day lives, we get caught up and, you know, everything that's happening in the world and you kind of forget about, you know, the fact that there's a human being next to you instead of just some jerk that cuts you off in traffic. It's actually a yeah. living, breathing human being that God loves. And so I, I think, you know, that's something that, that is a positive of a tragic situation comes out of it. We begin to think about each other as human again. And I think that that's an awesome thing. Absolutely. So let's just talk about the mundane for a moment. Breaking news in college basketball world. Roy Williams retiring after 903 wins. Thank God he gave Syracuse that uh, one <laughs> loss in April 7, 2003 in the Superdome in New Orleans where you had the call. What's your thoughts on Roy Williams retiring? Sort of surprising. Well, it, it is and it isn't from the standpoint that I, I saw a note today somewhere on my social media where apparently recently he's been speaking openly about his concerns about college athletics. And we saw just yesterday with uh, the Supreme Court looking at the paying student-athletes issue and the name, image, and likeness coming up. 
uh, the, the transfer portal, which I'm sure you'll want to get into at some point in time, but what yeah. that means for college athletics. You I'm know, actually in it now. I'm going back. <laughs> <laughs> you still got some eligibility. That's good. I'm ready. I'm ready. Uh, you know, so I, I think for for a guy like Roy Williams, and I've talked with a number of coaches that I deal with on a regular basis, and, you know, some of them uh, are, are younger than me. Some of them are older. Roy happens to be 70 years old. He's been around a long time. He's been in this sport. He's watching it change. And I think sometimes we get to the point where there's some of the uh, old dog, new tricks kind of thing where people begin to uh, – they're uncomfortable with the way things are going and, and they're not sure how to handle it or, or maybe they don't like the direction of it. And I'm assuming there's some of that with Roy, just thinking, you know, this thing is changing so much. I'm late in my career. He's got nothing left to prove with three, three national championships. Thank goodness it wasn't four, by the way, for Orange Nation out there. Yes. And yes. Uh, you know, so I think for him, um, you know, the, the, the time has come. But I saw Dick Vitale today say that he's out of the Mount Rushmore of college basketball coaches. And who am I to argue with that? And there was Dick Vitale signing a three-year extension with ESPN this morning at the age of 80. Pretty amazing. Pretty amazing. Yeah. Been around forever. And I got that. We both know and love Jim Beheim. We both had our uh, you know, experience with Syracuse. You know, uh, Jim's in his 70s. So, you know, you've been for a long time. Roy Williams has decided that, uh, you know, yeah, I guess it's time for him. And, boy, he, like I said, the, the resume he's put together at Kansas and at North Carolina, it, he'll stack that up against just about anybody. So let's talk about the Syracuse experience for a moment. I had the opportunity as a – 2003 to sit right behind you with my brother Ayala, blessed memory of special special needs quadriplegic. We would sit in that uh, wheelchair section right behind the broadcast. Uh, WSY was it SYR? Which, what station were you on back then? Well, we we were on. You know, in terms of the station, there was a rock station. We were on. We were on. We were on yeah, we yeah, that's right. We were on the the you know radio network for Learfield IMG Sports at that point in time. Got it. So we used to sit right behind you and you would make that call. Maybe the Jerry McNamara, the three, it was amazing. The right between the eyes, seven of those calls at the NCAA final four um, during the first half. Um, how, how do you come up with that call? You know, I, it, it just happened generically. You know, one of the things I did when I was at Syracuse in the Newhouse School was, was teach a class in sports casting. In fact, my broadcast yeah. partner, Matt Park, and I both did that. I'm Matt still doing it. And then when I got here to Colorado, I started doing the same thing a number of years ago. Uh, and I always tell young broadcasters, you can't force those things, right? I mean, you mm-hmm. know, it's like in Major League Baseball, guys have got, you know, their, their signature home run calls, um, you know. Uh, you know, people in basketball have things that they kind of become commonplace for them. That, that's something that I say on the basketball side. Uh, Colorado fans will tell you in football, you know, one of the things that we say all the time, it just kind of developed was, you know, when the buff score a touchdown, 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 Colorado. And th- those things just kind of happen, you know, I think uh, you know, from a grassroots level and, and you know, uh, organically and, and, and something you can't force. If, if you force a call, if you're looking at a big moment or the end of a championship game, and you try and plan something, it's going to come across that way. And that's uh-huh. why, you know, it's, for example, uh, you know, uh, do you believe in miracles? That wasn't planned. It just happened for Al Michaels. And and that's why it's a great call. And so calls like that, when when they happen, they just kind of develop over the course of time. I, you know, I, I, who knows? I probably thought, you know, it might be kind of fun to say one time. So I said it, and I thought, that sounded all right, and then got some good response to it, and it just kind of developed that way, I think. So... Take us then back to uh, Syracuse and that championship season, right? Or when when was that moment that you, actually? Sorry, I'm going to back up for a second. So when you take that thought of not having to plan it, but really it comes naturally and organically from the grassroots. Take that now to the pastor side and the faith side. When you're preaching, yeah. 
How does that come about? You prepare a sermon, you prepare a wedding. You said you're going to be officiating some weddings in the, in the, in the summer. How does that come from the heart? Because I know the broadcast piece comes from the heart as well. Yeah. Well, you know, for, for me, um, the way my faith, I'm not going to allow uh, it's so much more important than me calling a, a ball game of some sort. I'm not going to allow myself to maybe screw that up somehow. And, and so then I go into anything that I do in that regard. I go into it very prayerful, right? I sit down and really pray about the message that has kind of been has, has been on my heart, and and, and then get in, into God's Word and and look at that and study and and compare this verse to that verse and uh, go between the New Testament and the Old Testament, you know, the Christian perspective, and and, and I, I go into that with much more preparation in terms of the message than I would. Uh, something like that. You know, a ball game, you prepare for the game. You don't prepare for that moment outside of the, you know, the, the preparation goes into the game. Where when, I, when I'm thinking about a, a message, you know, I, I'm I'm very deliberate about that, getting ready for that and knowing full well it's it's not going to be just, uh, in fact, it, it should never be on me because I'll fail every time if I'm the one that's going to be uh, the inspiration behind you know, that kind of uh, message or concept. It's interesting because at the same time, I think what we do as preachers is also called sacred entertainment. One rabbi once said that if you're not enjoying that if that moment of giving the inspiring sermon, then how is the person in the pew going to enjoy that as well? So yeah. when you turn on that screen, and I said before that Jew, the Jewish community has finally met religion and entertainment have you know come together during this pandemic as we can't gather in person. Um, how do you... You, you do still have to give that inspiring call. You can't just read the words of your heart. It has to be acted out in a way that somebody's going to feel something on the other end. Yeah, no, I, I think there's something to that. I mean, anytime you speak, whether it be in a podcast like this, in a radio or television broadcast, when you're you know, doing a keynote at, a, at some kind of a, you know, rubber chick event or, or you're, you're preaching, uh, you know, uh, from the Lord. I mean, there's always a level of, you know, one thing I say to my students all the time, if you sound bored, everyone listening is going to be bored. All right. I yeah. have very early in my career, Rabbi, I started out like a lot of broadcasters. I call it my long hair, night infested disc jockey days. All right. I was on an FM station way back in the day and I had a uh, program director walk in one day when I was probably, I don't know, 19, 20 years old. And he said that to me. He said, Hey, let, let's put some energy in your voice, for goodness sakes. He said, those people out there are listening. They're having a tough day. They're going to work and paying bills and arguing with their spouse or whatever it might be. Why don't you put a smile on your voice and yes. act like you're enjoying it, and then that will come across on the air and brighten their day. And so that phrase I use all the time with my students, for example, put a smile on your voice. And, and you know, people say, to me, well, am I being fake that way? No. I, I, you know, I say to them, you know, when you get real excited about something, you go running up to a friend, you go, hey, guess what's going on? This is big news in my life. You got energy in your voice, right? It's not fake. You're just excited about something. Well, learn to do that on a regular basis, and it just adds a little bit of life to, you know, whatever your presentation might be. I love that. Put a smile in your voice. So even yep. the smile that you can't see, your smile can hear. I know you do it brilliantly on, on the radio as well. So talk about living your dream. You said before that you wanted to be a pastor or a broadcaster. Why does a young person growing up in North Dakota have a aspirations of being a pastor? On young, young people that come in here don't often say, I want to be a rabbi. They say, I want to play in the NBA. And I say, maybe you should be a rabbi. But not, not many people say, how does that dream come about? Well, I'll tell you this. And to be totally forthright with you, um, there, there was the thoughts of playing in the NBA. I did play basketball. And so uh, when I got to the college level, and I'm a six foot five uh, two man, kind of a wing or two or three 
uh, type player who shot the ball pretty well, couldn't play a lick of defense, and uh, wasn't overly athletic. I realized that there wasn't a huge market for guys like that in the NBA. So I realized that that dream was over. But the, the broadcasting thing and the speaking thing has always been something that's been kind of uh, uh, just a, a, of interest to me. I always kind of seem to have that calling, if you will. And uh, I, I tell the story that my mom years ago found a, a first grade report card. And, and anybody that, you know, I grew up in the 70s and 80s, you remember, they, they gave you numbers for these different marks. And one of them was the, uh, the, the personal conduct mark, which was basically if you were disruptive in class or talk too much. Well, my old joke was uh, one was you were a saint and, and four means you were just uh, shy of being a felon. And and I'd always get about a three of that because my, my teacher wrote on there, uh, Marky is so uh, such a wonderfully nice boy, but he talks so much and he's so loud. And, and so I came from, Rabbi, a very quiet family, a very introverted family, mm-hmm. that, that uh, the idea of speaking uh, you know, in front of a group of people was just horrifying to them. And I, everyone else has probably heard the, the great old line that, you know, in a study that says in America, the number one fear in America is public speaking. Number two is dying. And, and the old joke yeah. has always been, you'd rather be giving the eulogy than be in the casket, right? Yes. And, and so, um, oh, I think you went on mute there. Like, there we go. Oh, there you you're to come back? No, you're, you're, yeah, you're good. All right. Uh, my, my family was always surprised that, you know, and, and I used to joke with them all the time. I said, okay, was I adopted? Nobody told me about this because I like to talk so much. And so it was just something that as a young man, I'm growing up, once I realized I wasn't going to play in the NBA and thought, I'd, I'd really like to do this kind of thing. And, and to be honest with you, there was somebody that was kind of an inspiration to me. Um, mm-hmm. Tom Brokaw for NBC News was a South Dakota guy. Okay. Mm-hmm. And being from North Dakota, I didn't know anybody that that was in the industry or, or had done well, you know, nationally, if you will. And I, I looked at him and thought, well, he's from South Dakota. Maybe, maybe I could do what he's doing. And for me, then thinking about that, if you ever seen the movie Fargo, for example, you know, that Minnesota, North Dakota kind of accent. I remember as a kid thinking to myself, I can't sound like everybody I live around. I have to sound more like him. And, and mm-hmm. so as a kid, I made this, this um, actual you know, decision, okay, how can I emulate kind of that kind of sound and so it was something i thought about as a kid and had worked through and and then when it came to uh you know being a sportscaster or a pastor my old joke has always been uh, the lord knew that nobody needed the lord more than the media so he sent me to the media and that's where i was able to uh, start a ministry if you will right there and do those paths intersect right growing up in syracuse i never heard you speak about god on the radio right yeah. i heard the players speak about god oh thank god thank god right yeah. but yeah. are you thinking ever in faith terms while you are on a football basketball broadcast or do you compartmentalize or do you think about how to if you wish secularize the religious language on the radio well uh it's there there're kind of two mindsets i have when i go to a broadcast N- number no number one um I try to think that that everything that I do, I should be trying to represent the Lord and glorify God. Okay, so that that's where I go into every broadcast. Um, I mean, so, yeah, you know, and, and uh, Red Barber is is one of the great play-by-play announcers and kind of the godfather of play-by-play when you think about what we do for a living. And and I was reading a book on Red years ago, and and right before uh, every broadcast, he would recite a psalm to himself. Uh, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart always my heart be acceptable. acceptable right. to you, yeah, right. you know, we say that three times a day in our prayers in, in Judaism. Yeah. The silent go. prayer, we say before we say our immediate prayer, 
say Adonai Svatai, that God should open up our lips to only lips to only say words of praise. And at the end, we in fact is a choreography. We take three steps backwards as if we were before God and now we're going wow. back to God. And we awesome. say may the words of so we say those words. Yeah. There you go. And so, so for me that and I reading that from, from Red Barber doing that, I, I just it I, I thought to myself, it, it puts me in that frame of mind that, that I'm here to glorify nice. him. Now, when I get on the air. I'm doing a secular broadcast. I'm representing, in, in my case, you know, at Syracuse uh, University and here in Colorado, the same thing. And and so I understand that if I went on and started preaching all of a sudden on air, that wouldn't go over very well. It wouldn't be appropriate. Uh, and so I understand that when I'm doing that broadcast, that's what it's about. And and so I'm not, not veering off into those areas at that point. But I'm, I'm just trying to do, uh, you know, in, in the New Testament says, may the word, rather, uh, uh, no matter if you eat, drink, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. And so I try to have a mindset when I go in and do a broadcast. Well, just now in 2003, you had a rabbi in training sitting behind you and behind me with my father, who was also a rabbi in Syracuse for uh, 40 years. So there are lots of prayers going into that broadcast in 03. <laughs> nice. I don't know if you remember the, the Pittsburgh uh, Syracuse game uh, when they rushed to court three times and Beheim tell everybody to sit down, <laughs> right? That was the most. Unbelievable game when Jeremy McNeil had free throws. He couldn't hit a shot all year, and he made. Those were you in the middle? Throws. Were you in the middle of the crush in the field or the court? <laughs> no, I, I was actually honestly protecting my brother to make sure that we weren't being <laughs> that we weren't being crushed. Um, but I want to also talk about another piece of faith that you mentioned before, and that's the special needs community. You have a son, twenty-four years old, living with you um, with cerebral palsy, and that's been a large part of your life and faith. As I said, I'm a brother of a special needs individual who passed away in 2017. Also in a family of faith, my father, my sister, uh, my wife, um, and myself are all rabbis, and the special needs community has played a large part in that. Um, tell us a little bit about how Jacob has really influenced your faith and uh, to put sports, if you wish, into perspective. Well, you know, it's, it's interesting, uh, even ago prior to Jacob, um, so here I am, this this young dishcocky, you know, working at, in my hometown of Grand Forks at that point in time, and we get a call at the radio station one day. It's, it's, stations typically will. They're looking, you know, different organizations are looking for a little help, a little publicity. And somebody called up and just said, hey, would, would anybody there be interested in doing some public uh, address answer work for a Special Olympics powerlifting event? Yes. Well, at that, at that time, when I was done playing college ball, I, I you know, was, spent a lot of time in the gym. And I, the guy, I was had a couple of roommates at that time, were single guys. And so one of them actually owned a gym and, and I would work out there. And I thought, yeah, I'm, I'm familiar with that world. So sure, I'll, I'd be happy to. And so isn't it interesting that I go and do that, fell in love with the kids, their hearts, their demeanor, the way they, they just, every day they show up and just love everybody. They don't have any, any of those, uh, you know, biases, the rest of us and garbage the rest of us deal with. And I started doing that. It ended up being something I did a couple of times a year for about, I don't know, three, four, five years uh, until the career moved me around. So I, I got involved in Special Olympics, even though I had no connection to it from having somebody in my life that would have been involved. And then a number of years later, so that would have been uh, in the early 1990s or 1991, right in that area. And then uh, in 1997, my third child is born, and it's Jacob Johnson, who is... To this day, I mean, a walking miracle. Uh, it was one of those deals where when he was born, uh, I'm out making sure my wife was okay and, and the baby's here and they're doing the drops and the ice and all the things they do. And I went to you know, check on my other two uh, her with a friend and, and I'm walking back in and they rush us into a room and sit down and say, hey, this is not good. Here's what's going on. And there was brain damage. He's got cerebral palsy. He's got a, a myriad of different issues that greatly and globally affect him. And 
you know, we, he might not live a week, he might not live a month, and here we are 24 years later, and he's still yeah. with us, and, and he's our forever child, as we say here. And that obviously impacted us greatly. But from a family perspective, um, I say about Jacob all the time, he's the greatest blessing of my life and mm -hmm. the greatest challenge of my life. Because mm -hmm. there is phenomenal stress in the special needs world, and you, you may know this uh, you know, through what your family did with your brother. I mean, the divorce rate in, in marriages in that world is off the charts. It's like 90%. Uh, it, it impacts an entire family. There are challenges. Um, other children begin to learn that Jake's got special needs, and so he gets more attention than, than the rest of us do for mom and dad, all those kind of things. And so it, it's, it's an interesting dynamic you learn to work your way through. And I don't know how anybody does it without having some degree of faith in their life that they can lean upon. Because uh, I, I simply know that we're sitting here 24 years later and nearly 30 years with my wife. We would not be sitting here as a group if not for the faith in our life that gave us strength to walk that journey and, and accept all the challenges. So we actually have a motto that we take from the Psalms in our families in Hebrew, Zehayom Asad and I, uh, you probably know this one in English, but this is the day that God made, Nagila uh, yeah. that we should rejoice in it. And I think your description of Jacob as a forever child is exactly what we, what, what we do. And the sports community, at least in my own story, has been... Uh, both an escape and also an inspiration. In 2003, yeah. in fact, um, uh, Coach Baham invited my brother to go to the last practice at Manly Fieldhouse before nice. you guys went to the Superdome. And in 96, uh, when we made the Final Four, my brother was able to paint with a mouth stick, and he painted a picture of the team that he presented to John Wallace, Otis Hill, Don wow. McNabb was a walk-on on that team. And to, and I remember the the team gathering together, and Coach Beheim stopped practice, and my dad said, "Guys, I know what you're doing is important. You're going to go down to the Meadowlands. You're going to play, you know, Kentucky, Mississippi State. But what you're doing right now um, is is really what matters." And I, I think that, that that stuck with me as a child, and I think it's leading to me in, in terms of this conversation as well. Yeah, it, it's awesome. It, it does change your perspective. I I shared with you before we went on. You know, I sat down with a coach one day years ago, who shall mm -hmm. remain nameless. Uh, he was struggling with the stresses of the job and and the things you deal with, the pressures of being a coach of a major program. And I, I as I was trying to support him and, and you know give him some advice and, and reassure him and those kind of things, I did get to a point where um, I guess it, it didn't seem to be penetrating. So I well, let me give you some different perspectives. And so I said, you know, coach, every day my wife and I at this point in our life we walk to the door and wonder, is today the day we open the door and, and Jacob is no longer with us? And I said, mm -hmm. so. I'm not, I'm not trying to diminish what you're going through. I'm trying to give you perspective on things because that's what having somebody like, in my world, Jake brings to my life is that, yeah. you know, the things we get caught up in and we get tied up in and frustrated about and the traffic's bad and this bill's due and, you know, my, my wife uh, snapped at me and all these silly things that we get worried about and frustrated about then kind of fall away because uh, in the large picture, because of Jake's perspective, I can begin to see that and understand those things really aren't that important. Exactly. And uh, is, he, is he a sports fan? Is he, does, he, does he love what you do? Or does he watch <laughs> yeah, the games with you? He, uh, what, what he does, it's kind of funny because obviously here at the house, when, when I'm on the air, uh, you know, my wife will have uh, the broadcast on. And, and so Jake, uh, Jake's really, he's, he's, he, there's some cortical vision issues within Jake. And he sees, but, but we're not exactly sure how and exactly how it works. But um, he's very, very auditory. And uh, mm -hmm. in fact, most of the time, if you ever saw Jake have a pair of, earbuds in. He's listening to his, his King George. He listens to George Strait, the king of country music. He's got about 400 songs on an iPod. 
And uh, so Jake will, will hear everything. And so he might be in the other room. The broadcast is going on. But, you know, he'll holler around, you know, touchdown, Colorado, or right between the <laughs> eyes. Or someone hears dad do it on the radio. So he, he loves the sports in that regard because of the, the activity. It's interesting. Um, J- Jake's such a social human being. He loves the fact there's interaction and there's excitement going on. When, when we push him onto an elevator, he has to introduce us to everybody on the elevator. Hi, this is Mark. This is Susan. And so he loves the social aspect of, of what sports brings. Um, so I want to bring you because 2003 was an inspiring moment, literally in my life as a, let's see, a junior in college. And, uh, you know, nobody's ever lived that down. We're going to take you to one shiny moment and relive that moment for a second. And I'll talk that. can't make that stuff up <laughs> uh, unbelievable isn't it yeah i'm reliving it right now so many years later what was that like being in that moment and having the responsibility to bring it to the world well it, it's you know it, it's kind of funny I'll, I'll give you a little background story on, on what happened that day as the team works its way through the tournament they obviously have very specific times that uh, you know the coaches are available to the media and, and so what happens is that that gets limited as you kind of funnel towards the final four. And ultimately, uh, the play-by-play guy becomes kind of this, this connection to the team. And so you're doing a lot of mm-hmm. interviews. People want to talk about about the, the the basketball team and the game coming up and this and that. And so on the day of the championship, I'm, I'm thinking to myself, okay, I have to kind of curb this because it was really getting out of hand. I mean, I was doing eight or ten different interviews around the country a day, and I got to get ready for the broadcast. We were doing a live television show. Oh, we signed, I don't know, two or three hours prior to tip off. And then I had to get inside or do the pregame show and, and then do the game. And there was a guy that was in Miami that I'd been on a show. For some reason, he had been kind of in love with the, the Orange for quite some time. So all through the tournament, obviously, the regular season. Then he calls me up the day of the game after my self-imposed cutoff for interviews. And he says, um, hey, do an interview with me. And I said, uh, you know, I'm just, I'm, I'm trying to get ready for the game. And he kind of persisted. And I said, okay, so I'll give you five minutes. But then that's it. So we jump on the air. And we're, we're, we're talking about the game, matchup with Kansas and all that. And he says to me, uh, what are you going to say if they win? And I said, I, you know, I don't know. I haven't planned anything. I'm just getting ready for the game. And I want to make sure everything's in the proper context. And and he says, well, again, about the third time he kind of pressed on that question, I, I said, why do you keep asking me that? And he said, because it, it came to mind that whatever you say, is going to live forever. And if you screw it up, nice. it's really going to be embarrassing for a long time. And uh, nice. I ended up saying to him, uh, I said, you know, I've never been in, in, in nervous to do a game my entire life until right now. Thank you very much. So I don't need mm-hmm. to tell you how the game ended. So the ball okay. goes out of bounds. We saw the block by Akeem Warren there at the very end. So the ball goes out of bounds with mere seconds remaining. And my partner, Matt Park, is, is saying something. And it, it crosses my mind what that gentleman had said to me. And I'm thinking, oh, my wow. goodness. Now i got a chance to think about this. So let's not screw up what you're about to say. And so uh, thank goodness I didn't. 
And uh, it, it turned out all right. And the, the, the Orange won the game, and they're national champions. And yeah, that's a moment I will I will never forget because those things don't come around very often. I guess let's just play by play boys of football for Alabama. They don't come around very often, and so mm-hmm. it's it's a treat to be able to say that I did that in my career. When did you realize that that team had it? I remember the Oklahoma game or Oklahoma State when you know down whatever in the second half and come back with that full court press and. Jeremy McNeil blocking in, in, in the back. When did you realize like this was going to be special? You know, you know what I and this might surprise you, and you'll remember this, big Syracuse fan. Remember the there was about a four day span, and I, I may not have the. I think we played at Michigan State on a Sunday CBS game, and then like uh, later in the week was a midweek or so play at Georgetown. And won those two games, and and that was about the time I remember talking with my my partner and the, uh, you know, Polly Sabilia, who was our engineer and our producer, I said, "Fellas, I think something's going on here. This this thing's got a chance." And you knew right there because remember, they, you know, the the Orange were coming off an NIT appearance the year before, uh, went to the uh, third. I went, went in the third place game. We're in New York for the the final four of the NIT, but didn't make the championship game. Um, really had been reworked. Carmelo Anthony comes in as the number one recruit in America. And, you know, you 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 hope he's going to be what the hype is about, but we know the way this I works. remember his exhibition game against Nike Elite. I was there. He scored like 30 points. I'm like, this, yes. this is ridiculous. And you realize, <laughs> okay, he is what they said he was, but you never know yeah. that sometimes. And so so when he got there, you're, you're thinking, well, I think they're going to be pretty good. We didn't know a thing about this kid from Pennsylvania, this Jim McNamara, and what he was going to be. And, and so you weren't sure. So as the season wears on and not ranked early on and you're working your way through the year, they, well, they're pretty good. You know, Jimmy in his 2-3 zone, that thing seems to be working. Well, you keep Warren, such a great player, and Craig Force and I anchor and McNeil inside. And the way the Owl said was the was the thing that tied that whole thing together. His leadership and the left out in the front of that 2-3 zone was always so phenomenal. So I, it was it was about midway through that season where I thought – and in that swing between Michigan State and Georgetown, I thought there might be something special here. Nice. Uh, so let's go to the Big East of the Pac-12. It's in Los Angeles here, down the street from Pauley Pavilion. Uh, you know, everybody thought it was Big Ten's time, and all of a sudden all these teams get in from the Pac-12, UCLA and USC to the Elite Eight. Nick Cronin comes here, first or first four out to final four in. What is going on? You're a Pac-12 guy now with Colorado Buffaloes. Uh, I think we're going in and out. Can you hear me, Mark? You there, Mark? Well, it, it ended. Uh, I'm there. You got me? Uh, yeah, I, I think, think we're having a little bit of internet issues. Okay. Yeah. Um, I, I do live up in the mountains, so sometimes the internet does take a little bit of a hit. So I apologize yeah. for that. Um, you know, the, the Pac 12 over the years has not earned its own respect. And what I mean by that, from a basketball standpoint, in the last handful of years, there was, you know, just, what, four or five years ago, Oregon made the final four. Uh, that was, what, 2017, if I recall correctly. But, but really had other teams making uh, some noise in the NCAA tournament. And so, you know, it, it, I know Pac-12 fans like to say that we didn't get the respect we deserved out in this part of the country this past season. And you know what? You had to earn the respect. What, what, what have you done for me lately? And so... Uh, as the season wore on, I began to watch, you know, I knew Colorado was a good team. I really thought the Buffs were a legitimate top 25, potentially a sweet 16-level team, which which they certainly uh, were this season with maybe the best point guard, America, and McKinley Wright. And, uh, and then USC obviously was loaded. And UCLA had talent on it. Now, the Oregon State thing came out of 
on a left field for all of us. There were some solid players yeah. out there, but they were picked 12th, finished sixth, did beat the Buffs in the uh, Pac-12 title game. But it was good to see, and it you know it just goes to show. And I, I say this all about all the time about that 2003 Syracuse team. Were they the best team in America? Well, I don't know. They were one of the top, you know, seven or eight teams in the country. And then they began playing to their potential through the month right. of March, which is what you have to do. And so mm-hmm. this league caught fire at the right time. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So are we going to uh, be raising a championship trophy here in Pauly? You know what? I don't think so. And it is not that I'm cheering, it's not that I'm cheering against the Bruins, tell, uh, you know, to be honest and with you. Gonzaga is unstoppable. I just think, I said all year long, when you looked at college basketball, I said there was a 1A and a 1B. That was Gonzaga and Baylor. And then there was the rest of the field. And Baylor, although, you know, in the Final Four, playing some pretty good basketball, kind of tailed off a little bit there at the end of the year, had a couple of hiccups. But Gonzaga right now looks phenomenal. And I just, I'm hard-pressed to believe, you know, unless half the team gets a case of flu here in the week between the Elite Eight and the Final Four games, I just, I just don't know how anybody's going to beat them. I was on a show this morning, in fact, that a guy said, is there anybody, any way anybody beats Gonzaga? And I said, listen, anybody can lose, but it's going to have to be one of those games where despite mm-hmm. the fact they're the number one two-point uh, two point field goal shooting team in America, they're going to have to have an off night and somebody's going to have to be out of their mind on fire. And, and if that happens, you could see an upset, but I'm just hard-pressed to pick against Gonzaga. Yeah, and actually we had uh, Andy Katz, Seth Greenberg, and Dan Schulman on this show over the last two months, and they all said Gonzaga-Baylor. It's going to go down to that, which would be uh, yeah. really interesting. But as you said, prayers uh, do work, and may our words be acceptable to God as the Bruins go into, <laughs> go into, uh, go into this weekend for sure. Um, as we conclude, um, well, out of this pandemic, and like you said, you did like one game in person um, what, if you wish, I, don't, I won't say the silver lining, but rather the blessing. What is the blessing that you have found that, you know, some coaches said cancel the season and it shouldn't have happened. Others say it should have happened. What's your thoughts in the blessing that sports has been able to bring to our lives these last 10, 11 months? Well, we've all needed some semblance of normalcy. Something to What I've always said about sports is as much as we enjoy it, it gives us an opportunity for, you know, three hours on a Saturday or Sunday afternoon for a football game or a couple of hours on a Wednesday or Thursday night in the middle of, you know, January uh, in the doldrums of winter to get our mind off of, uh, you know, the troubles of the world and then mm-hmm. just enjoy a game where we can cheer for our team or, you know, a dog cuss the referees or whatever it might be. And, and, and so I think there's great value in that with all that we've all gone through in the last 12 to 13 months. And, and you know, Rabbi, I'd say this as well from a faith standpoint. You know, when, when, when we look at, and, and if you're in the Old Testament, the New Testament, the people that we read about in, in, in God's word lived their faith every single day. They lived yep. it. It was, yep. it was their DNA, right? And in modern society, we don't do that. And, and I do mm-hmm. wonder if the past 12 months, now it's not going to work that way for everybody, but I wonder if it's brought many people back to their faith a little bit stronger and thinking, I, I do need the Lord in my life every single day. And so uh, away from the sports playing service, I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful and I pray about that, that, that that's a big part of what we come out of the back end of this COVID pandemic with, that people have returned to their faith and returned to the Lord. Yeah, I mean, people are returning to Dodger Stadium, but next Saturday they're, in fact, returning to our sanctuary, and it's going to be a fascinating experience. I mean, the clergy, the rabbis have literally spent 12 months looking into a camera, hoping that people are hearing these words, but now to be able to see the expressions on a face 
have the feeling of community. I mean, within our within our own faith, you don't do it alone. And that's what I know yeah. you've expressed um, through your own family, through your own faith experience. You do it within community. We actually need that together. Um, yeah. So, Mark, it has been an absolute pleasure to re-meet you after the 2003 <laughs> season. I do hope that when you get down to L.A., um, we'll also be able to come to our synagogue right down the street from Pauly, a little further from USC, but just right across town and uh, enjoy our faith experience together. And uh, looking forward to hearing your calls on the upcoming Colorado uh, basketball season and or not upcoming, upcoming football season and basketball season as well. You have a blessing for us to uh, end our podcast this, uh, this, this morning. Well, it's, it's been a lot of fun. I'm really looking forward to it. It's always fun when I can reminisce about that phenomenal 2003 season for the Orange. That's always a welcome opportunity. And, and then to talk some sports and talk some faith, uh, like I said, that, that's, that, those are two passions of my life. So I've enjoyed it greatly. Thank you for having me. Thank you. May the words of uh, you, may the words of us be, uh, continue to bless you, your family, Jacob, and really our entire community as well. Next week on Rabbi on the Sidelines, um, a special with Jory Epstein, USA Today NFL columnist for the Dallas Cowboys, new author of a book, The Upstander, the Holocaust memoir of Max Glauben. Next week, April 8th, is in fact Holocaust Memorial Remembrance Day, and Jory will be our guest to share her story of sports and faith. Thank you for joining us and Rabbi on the sidelines. Have a great week.